welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Fifty years ago, you might have viewed marriage as a normal and perhaps expected part of adult life. Now, perhaps not so much. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series by design with the first part of this sermon entitled God's Design for Marriage, which covers Genesis chapter 2 verses 18 to 25, Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 to 6, and Revelation chapter 19 verses 6 to 8. For more information, to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Uh, today's reading is from Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, that at last is, that at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. O God, who gives generously to those who ask, we ask that you would give us understanding that we may keep your word, incline our hearts to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn our ears from looking, uh, I sorry, from looking at worthless things and instead give us life in your ways. Confirm to us your promise in Christ that we may love and worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen and amen. You read one word and you hear everyone else read a different word and you go, I bet they're right, not me. So. We're gonna continue in this series. Um, we're in the fourth week of a five-week series that we've been calling By Design as we consider God's design for, uh, for sexuality, for singleness, and for marriage. Let me show you, we're speaking this morning on, we're considering God's design for marriage. Uh, let's go back to the recommended resources first. Let me show you the resources that we have here that I'm just, there's a lot. There are so many that I could recommend to you. Uh, and I gave you, and two weeks ago, I gave you like 12, so I thought I'd give you a few less this week. But there's, uh, these are some uh, great resources that speak to marriage and God's design for marriage. You'll notice down there uh, at the very bottom what God has joined together, the PCA papers on divorce and remarriage. Great uh, resource for you as well that was put together by our denomination that we're a part of. And uh, you can go to, if you can, you can either take a screenshot of that or, or a picture of that, or you can go to perimeter.org slash Norris, and on there I've listed all the resources for this series that we have recommended, and some of those that I recommended two weeks ago are also great for today's topic as well. Um, 
Before we, before we jump in, I'll, I'll give you, I just mentioned a moment ago about how, you know, how do we respond when we're talking through and addressing things like God's design for marriage. And um, I, wanna, I wanna say that this week is gonna be more, as we think about marriage, more kind of apologetic in nature, meaning giving God's reason, the reason for God's design from the Bible, why marriage and why the way he set it up. Next week, Jimmy will lead us in part two of God's design for marriage, and that'll be more zooming in on marriage itself, the roles and responsibilities, the, the design, if you will, of man and woman and the way that we are to score, correspond and complement one another in the marriage relationship. And with that, as we consider a topic like this, we're gonna naturally today, I'm gonna have to uh, speak also to if we say, okay, this is God's design biblically for marriage, then these are also some of the ways in which there are things that exist outside of that design. And with that, that can be very controversial. That can be difficult. And it occurs to me that uh, there was a viral video many, many years ago, probably seven or eight years ago by now, if I had to guess, you may be familiar with the, magi uh, the magicians, the, the duo of Penn and Teller. Penn released a video many years ago of just himself talking, and he's, a, he's an atheist, an outspoken atheist. And he told a story about after one of their shows, a man came up to him, and as they were signing autographs and whatnot, and he handed him a little Bible. And in the Bible, he had written a personal note inside the, the flap. And uh, he gave it to him, and... and Penn said, well, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe this. He said, I know, I understand, but I, I, think, I think you should have this and began to share with him very briefly the good news of Jesus. Now, Penn uh, went online and recorded this video where he said, you may have seen it. He said, you know, here's, here's the thing. I was not offended at all by that. Now, I don't believe it. I don't think it's true, but I respected the man greatly. He was, he was so kind. He was generous. He was respectful. But here's why I respected him the most. I respected him the most because he was doing exactly what he should have been doing. In, in, in other words, if you are convinced that something is true, if you are convinced that there was a man indeed who walked the earth 2,000 years ago who was God in the flesh and he died a substitutionary atonement, a death for us for the sake of our sins so that we could be united to God again and then through faith in Jesus, be forgiven of sin and have eternal life and flourishing life now. If you believe that, that he is indeed the way, the truth, and the life, and that heaven and hell are on the line. And then this is what Penn said. He said, how much would you have to hate me to not tell me what you are convinced is true? Certainly in a loving way, respectful way, as he said. And so I want you to hear, if you, if you find yourself, if you might be one of the people that in some of the things that I say this morning, you would strongly and adamantly, perhaps even angrily disagree with. But I want you to hear my heart and this church's heart in saying that our posture would be the same as, as what, what Penn even articulated. That we are absolutely convinced in our interpretation of God's word, in our understanding of God's word, that what you will hear this morning is true. And how much would we have to hate you, as it were, to not tell you, to not preach it, to not teach it, and to know that we would do so genuinely out of a posture of love, out of care, not out of condemnation or canceling you, but out of saying, hey, we care for you, we think this is true, so we wanna present it to you. Now, it's no secret that uh, marriage is on the decline. 
This graph that you saw pop up just a moment ago, let's take a look at it now. Just a graph, this went viral recently as well. I saw it posted many places. But just since the 1970s, in the last 50 years, we see a significant decline. Up, upwards of 80% of people in the 70s were living with a spouse. Now, as of 2020, approximately 38% of people. The number of people living with parents and other relatives is greatly increased. The other one I'll draw your attention to, though, is the green one there. In, the 19, in 1970, it was almost virtually 0% of people were living with unmarried partners. Now it's upwards of somewhere around 17%. Again, this is not new. We know this. We know that marriage is on decline. I would specify it and say this. Uh, marriage as it is defined biblically, the historic Christian position on marriage is on the decline. And like the classic Christian teaching and doctrine on human sexuality that we discussed, that we, uh, discussed two weeks ago, just like that, the historic Christian teaching and definition of marriage is increasingly being seen by the culture around us, not only as old-fashioned and outdated, but offensive and harmful. Now, there is a great part that we own in why marriages are on the decline. There has been a great deal of struggle with marriages within the church. The church is certainly not immune by any stretch of the imagination. However, I'll just a quick side note say that um, there has been a widely circulated and quoted uh, stat that says that the marriages within the church are, have the same divorce rate as those outside the church, that the, both are 50%. And uh, with further research and fo further digging, that's actually not an accurate statistic. I can provide you, a, it's interesting, I don't have time now, I don't wanna go down that rabbit trail, but I can give you, if you're interested, some more, some more on, on uh, what, what is really true statistically, but I will just mention this, that uh, studies have shown that those who are active participants and members in their church are actually 35% less likely to be divorced than those in the culture around us. Nevertheless, there are a great struggle with marriages within the church as well. But as we think about where we're headed this morning, let me give you the big picture. Let me give you uh, the big idea of this message, and it breaks down into three things. Marriage is designed by God to first be a one flesh union between a male and a female in a way that images the unity and diversity that exists in God. Not based on companionship, but based on covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, there is no companionship. Simply what that's saying is that in in being a part of God's design and understanding how he designed marriage to be, it is primarily, supremely based on covenant. And part of being in covenant with one another is that you experience great companionship. But it's not the only thing, it's covenant. Secondly, marriage is designed by God to bring about human flourishing through procreation. In Genesis 1:28, after God said, let us create man and woman in our own image, in our own likeness, the very first command that he gave to man and woman was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Reign over it, have dominion over it. Cause it to flourish. So there's a design that God had between, that he created between man and woman that in so doing, it would involve procreation such that humanity and all the earth would flourish in that multiplication process. 
Third, marriage is designed by God to be a signpost, a picture, a, a way pointing to a better and eternal marriage to come. We'll talk about that as we wrap up here in a little bit. So God's design, what is it? We can sum it up as we read through the Bible and as we watch what God is unfolding for us. We can sum it up with these four short statements. One man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. One man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Now we see this most, uh, or we see it uh, quickly in the pages of scripture in Genesis chapter two. You can think of you can think of Genesis 1 and 2 of corresponding to one another. Sometimes people have thought that they're two different things that don't tie together. That's not true. Genesis 1, think of it as the, uh, the 35,000 foot view of God's creative work that we have for us all six days uh, spread out before us. This is what God did each day in the, the progression of his creation with day six being the culmination of his creation. In that, on that day, he created the pinnacle, the, the crown jewel of his creation, which is man and woman, because we, as men and women, carry with us the distinct honor of being the only created beings that image God, that are made in his likeness. And when you get to Genesis chapter two, think of it as a zoom in on that sixth day. This is how God did that. This is what it looked like when he created man and when he created woman and when he gave them the instructions and the parameters and the, the way in which to do life with him in the midst of his creation. Now, it's interesting. When you look through Genesis chapter one, even if you're not familiar with church or with a Bible, you probably know that each of those days finishes with God making a statement. And it was good. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the, the land and the sea. And he created the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And he created the plants and the livestock, all of it. And everything, every time, the cosmos, the planets, the stars, all of it, it was good. And he gets to the sixth day and he gives an exclamation point on what he says after, after he creates, again, the crown jewel of his creation, us. And he says, we have made them, and, and he's, it's one God existing in three persons made in the image of God. We'll talk more about the, un, the unity of the Trinity here in a moment and how that plays into marriage. He says, I have made them in my image. And then he says, and it was very good. But watch what happens in verse 18. For the first time, we get God saying something is not good. He says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It is not good. Now think about the context of what, what's happening and what we had read for us here in this passage just a moment ago. What's happening is God has created man first. And what he does is he brings all of the animals and all the created beings to man. And he gives them the responsibility of naming them. Now the implication here as a part of that naming process is that man is also searching for, can any of these created beings be an equal complement to me? 
Can any of these created beings carry the value that I carry as one made in the image of God? So as he's naming them, he's also looking, he's longing for a mate, for a helpmate, for another. And as God brings all these animals to him and as he names them all, you get to the end of it and man is disappointed. You get further down the text, remember it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. You might say, well, why didn't God just create woman right off the bat with man and then together they name the animals? Well, we don't know exactly, but I can take a guess that part of it, with my imagination, I would imagine that he needed to feel the need that he had. He needed to experience that after all of, all of these creatures that God has said, I get to rule and reign over and name and have dominion over so that they would flourish as it was made to be, none of them, none of them are a helper fit for me. He feels the loss, he feels the lack, and he's sad. Now that word helper, we gotta talk about that as well, right? Because helper is a word uh, that when we hear today, 21st century context, we struggle with. For a lot of reasons, we hear the word helper and for whatever reason, we think less than. We think inferior, but, but I want you to understand something. That word in the Hebrew is azer. And the reason I tell you that is not just so that you know, hey, I know the Hebrew word for helper. Here's why that's important. That word azer shows up most often in the Old Testament referring to God. You'll see it time and again. God is the helper of Israel. The Lord is my helper. You get to the New Testament even, and what is one of the names attributed to the Holy Spirit himself, third person of the Trinity? That he is our helper, our comforter and our helper. So here's the point. If it were meant to be a term of inferiority, why in the world would God give that name to himself? Why would he call himself the helper? If it's inferior, well, no, God is the most supreme being in all the universe. He's the one who created everything. Surely it can't be inferior. So it's, it's actually, that's a term, helper, that woman is the helper of man with, that, that carries with it. God is doing something here. He's saying, look, if I'm gonna refer to myself that way, that means that this is a term of great value and dignity and honor that is, that is actually pointing to the way in which woman compliments man. Now, I'm not saying that she says, hey, you look good today, or you're nice. Not complimenting verbally, it means that the, the thrust of that word is to saying there is a completedness that is experienced when man and woman both image God. Man cannot fully image God in and of himself. There are aspects of of. of of males that image God the way that God designed, and there are aspects of females, of women in which we image God. And together, the world gets a picture of the likeness of God through man and through woman, equally identified, equally valued. Listen to how Derek Kidner says it. 
in his commentary on Genesis. He says, the woman is presented wholly as his partner and counterpart. Nothing is yet said of her as childbearer. She is valued for herself alone. The sexes are complementary. The true partnership is expounded on by the terms that are used. A helper fit for him, literally a help as opposite him or corresponding to him. I love this from Matthew Henry. What a beautiful quote here. The woman is not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Now watch what happens next. Remember how God presented the animals to Adam? He brought the animals to him and said, name them. And as he's doing that, Adam's looking. Is there one out there for me? What does he do? He awakens Adam. He had put him into a slumber and he, he awakens him. What is it? He presents the woman to him. And what does Adam do? Adam is elated. Common, there, there were some commentators that I read this week that I had never seen it this way. And I went, oh, that's beautiful. Where these commentators, I'll read you a couple of quotes here in a moment, where they said, this is the first wedding ceremony, the very beginning of creation. Where God is pl playing the role of attendant, where he's presenting the bride to the groom. Adam is, is standing in his tux, as it were, watching her come to him. He's seeing her, and he's seeing all these other creatures and, go, and, and going, they don't, that's not them. That's, they're not fit for me. They don't cut it. And he sees Eve. He sees woman, and he says, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And you'll see in your Bibles, that's indented on both sides. It's poetic language. He was probably perhaps even singing his response. Glory, right? You don't want me to sing. Anyway, he's singing hallelujah. At last, he's, he's rejoicing in who God has presented to him. At last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And it's deeper than just what he's seeing physically. Of course, he thinks she's beautiful. But he's experiencing something there, even in the first glance of there is a compliment to me now happening. There is a completedness to my being able to image God with her that is happening. There is something here that I have longed for that God has given me. And it is very good. And he rejoices. Now watch what happens next. As I said, there's an institution of marriage here. By the way, this, that, that little poetic refrain from Adam, only words we have recorded of him before the fall. Only once. God is presenting his bride, and, and, and listen to the language here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, don't you know? Don't you know at that point they were like, who? God is, God is instituting marriage here, right? He's doing, he's putting something together that will be true throughout the ages, such that they, there is no mother and father yet, but he's saying there will be. And in the way that I'm presenting the bride to you right now, you do that with your generations. 
And they shall leave their father and mother. Hold fast, that's covenant language. Hold fast to cleave. Make a covenant with your wife. Listen, listen to how Kidner says it again. He says, the union of the two in marriage is to be an exclusive. A man leaves, permanent, and cleaves and holds fast. That's that covenant language. And God sealed bond, the one flesh. For God himself, like a father of the bride, leads the woman to the man. There's that image again. Listen, Bruce, Bruce Walkie picks up on it in his commentary on Genesis as well. He says, the first marriage set in the sacred temple garden and designed by God signifies the holy and ideal state of marriage. God plays the role of attendant to the bride. He gives the man his wife. Now, we, we see it, Genesis 2, sixth day of creation, marriage ceremony. The Bible begins with a marriage. But why? Why would God set it up that way? You remember we stated just a moment ago, God's design, one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Why would he do it that way? Let me, let's consider that question. Why one man and one woman? And let's consider two things. First, the Bible. It's important that we look at the Bible as a whole. Go back out. Zoom back out to 35,000 foot view and let's consider the whole of scripture and what we call the redemptive arc of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And we, when we're studying the Bible and we're looking at it from the big picture view, we're, we're asking questions, right? We're asking questions of what are, what are some of the main themes that God is wanting us to pick, on, pick up on as we read through the whole text. And the predominant theme, the predominant theme is that it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus, and the picture of that theme is that of marriage. God has always used that picture from the very beginning until the very end, and even for all of eternity, as we'll see here in a moment. He's always referred to himself as that he is the husband to his people who are the bride. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. They were his bride. They were an unfaithful bride. They struggled mightily with spiritual adultery all the way through their existence. But who was God? He was the faithful husband who kept pursuing and kept pursuing and kept pursuing and saying, I will not forget the covenant that I made with you. You may be unfaithful to me, but I will never be unfaithful to you. You are mine. And the image, the picture, the visual that he gives time and again is that of marriage between a husband and a wife. You get to the New Testament, the same picture continues specifically centered on Jesus. That Jesus now, as the one who has come in the flesh, God in the flesh to rescue us, who is he rescuing? Scripture tells us he's rescuing his bride to make her beautiful again, to cleanse her, to present her as holy and righteous before the Father, to lead her again back down the aisle, to marry her. Listen, don't miss this. To be united to her, to hold fast to her, to cleave to her, to be in covenant with her. What does Romans 6 say? That we are in union with him. The two shall become one flesh. 
How does scripture in the New Testament teach us that when we've believed upon Christ, what is true of us? We are in Christ and Christ is in us, meaning we are united to him, one flesh. Ephesians 5, where we'll camp out next week, we'll dive into this whole picture, the most glorious picture we have in scripture, of that there's a beautiful mystery that exists between Jesus and his church. And it's this picture of marriage, that he's the husband and we are the bride. You know, we lose something if we lose that picture. We, we, we actually don't understand all that God wants us to understand if we lose that picture. The redemptive historical arc of the Bible is that marriage is designed by God in creation as a one flesh, male-female complement that can, that can produce offspring. Remember Genesis 1:28, be fruitful and multiply. Now listen to this, every law or command or teaching in both the old and the new concerning sexuality affirms that very creational design. Everyone, all of Christ's redeeming work leads us towards this complementary marriage between God and his, and, and his creation of man and woman. You may be thinking critically here and say, well, hold on, okay. I've read, I've read the Old Testament. There's a lot of polygamy. What do we do with that? You're saying one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. And I would simply say this. It was wrong. <laughs> now, there seems to be, um, it was never an endorsement by God, but there seems to be an allowance of polygamy. But I'll, I'll present to you this. You know, we can struggle with it. You know, David had a lot of wives. Solomon had 700 wives. How is that even possible, Right? But I would present to you this. First of all, God never blessed them. They were in sin when they were doing that. And secondly, how did that work out for them? Not good. We don't have any occurrence of God ever in the Old Testament ever giving his blessing to and causing those who are doing it to flourish as a result because it's outside of his design. And furthermore, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus puts an end to it. Listen to the words of Matthew chapter 19. It says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He's just saying, look, go back to Genesis 2. This is how the father designed it. This is how the Trinity designed it. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus didn't negate the Old Testament sexual ethic. He actually affirmed it in every way. Now, furthermore, when we think about one man, one woman, we have to, again, this is where I said, we have to consider what are some of the other ways in which we can be outside of God's design. And of course, we would say same-sex couples and unions would be outside of God's design. It's important to note that there's not a single example of a same-sex couple in all the New Testament. Certainly that's not because of it not being prevalent in the culture around them. There were certainly um, same-sex unions and relationships all throughout the Roman Empire. 
we would be confident in saying that if the Bible spoke in favor of it, we would know it, we would see it, it would be represented in the text. Quote Richard Hayes here, Methodist professor at Duke, at Duke Seminary, he says this, the only paradigms offered by the New Testament for homosexual behavior are the emphatically negative and stereotypic sketches in the three Pauline texts, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. The New Testament offers no accounts of homosexual Christians, tells no stories of same-sex lovers, ventures no metaphors that place a positive construal on homosexual relations. It's simply not there. But let's consider tradition as well. What is the church taught over the course of 2,000 years. You know, it's interesting, for the very beginning of the church, up until really about 50 years ago, despite all the schisms, all the differences of denominations, and uh, even between Protestant and Catholic, up until about 50 years ago, the church, across all lines of division, overwhelmingly agreed in the interpretation of Scripture according to God's design for marriage. Overwhelming. Now, we don't hold tradition as being as authoritative as Scripture. Scripture is our ultimate authority, God, through Scripture. But we can learn from tradition, and we can say, look, if the church, in all of its disagreements, for the better part of 2,000 years, has agreed on how to interpret God's Word in His design for marriage, remarkably so, then that should give us some level of, of uh, confidence. Why one flesh? Why one flesh? The, the one flesh union that we're to experience in marriage is to reflect, listen, don't miss this language. The one flesh union that we are to experience in marriage is to reflect, like I spoke to a moment ago, the union that we have with God through Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, then you have been united to him. Sex is a gift from God. It's something that God created, that he gave to man and woman to be enjoyed within the design that he gave it in. And in his design, certainly there are confines to that. But we have to go back to where we began this series. The very first sermon in this series, Caleb led us through this, just this proposition to say this. If God is good, if, well, first of all, if there is a God who created all things with purpose, with direction, with design, and he is good, and he's loving, and that what he created for was ultimately for his glory, but a part of doing that was that we, those made in his image, would flourish in every aspect of life. If that's what he was doing in the original design of all things, then we have to therefore then conclude that his design, even though outside of how I might construct things, and certainly possibly even outside of my very own desires, is better. That in his design, I actually flourish better than any design that I could come up with on my own. This is where we talked the second week about the importance of being able to say, look, if I look in with the adage of say, I just wanna be true to myself because when I'm true to myself, that's the most freedom. But yet at the same time, what we think is freedom by looking in ultimately constricts us more that really true freedom is from looking without to see who is the creator, who is the designer and defining my life by him 
what he has put together, not by me and what I think is best. There is, there's actually joy in experiencing the gift of sex within the confines that he gave it, which is marriage. And it's not God being a jerk. It's not God saying, hey, I'm gonna give you something beautiful and awesome and amazing and then say, you can't have it unless it's this one little thing. No, he did it because he wanted it to be a reflection of the union that we have with him. Think about it. What are we saying if we, if we unite ourselves to our spouse in the context of marriage? What we're doing is it's a gift to enjoy, yes, but it's so much deeper than that. Don't miss this. It's us saying that there is a God who made a covenant with us that he would say, I will give myself to no one else but you. And when I give myself to you, I will give myself to you fully. I will be wholly yours and you will be wholly mine and we will be united as though we are one flesh. And marriage, sex and marriage is to be that deep imaging of that to the world around us, to say this is holy, this is good, this is pure, this is right, and in a way that I'm not ashamed of, this is glorifying to God. That's the picture of one flesh that God has given us, so that in it, it's actually all about Jesus. We haven't talked about this enough as a church. When have you ever opened your bulletin at a church and seen the sermon for the day is sex is actually all about Jesus? It's about imaging his glory in the union that we have with him, that God would give us this gift and say, enjoy it, because it's beautiful, because it ultimately points to me and my union with my church, the deepest of intimacies the deepest of joys. That's why it's one flesh. But listen, if, if we lose, if we, listen, I'll just read the quote. There's some proponents, let me say this first before I read the quote. There's some pro proponents of, of gay-affirming theology that says Genesis 2, yes, of course, it's, it's, um, you know, it's depicting heterosexual marriage, but it's, it's also normative for there to be heterosexual, uh, homosexual marriage. But here's the problem with that. The problem is that if, in that profound mystery of Christ in the church, if there is no male-female, then we lose the whole image. This is how Rachel Gilson notes in her book, Born Again This Way. She says, if you lack one of the partners, the male or the female, you destroy the picture. Lose the male from the marriage, you lose the picture of Christ. Lose the female, you lose the picture of the church. Nor are the members interchangeable, just as Christ and the church have different roles and responsibilities within the one shared relationship, so do a husband and a wife. Lastly, why one lifetime? Where does the permanence come from? Well, it actually has everything to do with the Trinity. It has everything to do with how God enters into relationship with us for eternity. When he makes covenant with us, he says, I make covenant with you and it's unwavering commitment. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people forever. The marriage that we have with Jesus through faith in him is not temporary, it's eternal. So what is marriage to be? It's to be a reflection of that. 
that we would be making a covenant bond with one person to say with you for a lifetime. Unless, as we say in our vows, unless death do us part. I'll read to you this fairly lengthy quote, but I think it just sums up not just the, the lifetime aspect, the permanence of marriage, but even a lot of all that we've said this morning. It's from a guy named Richard Koken in his piece that he wrote in 2015 called Marriage is a Mirror. He says this, the doctrine of the Trinity which Jesus endorsed and scripture teaches also profoundly affects Christian marriage. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in a permanent, plural, equal, complementary, ordered, and loving union. And since we're created like God, we thrive in marriage relationships that mirror his Trinitarian union. Since God is permanent, he designed us for lasting marriages, not divorce. Since God is triune, he designed us for marriages of intimate companionship. Since God is three equal persons, he designed us for marriages in which husbands and wives are equally dignified. Since God is diverse and complementary, he created marriage to be diverse and wonderfully complementary with a heterosexual union, not a homosexual union. Since God's Trinity is ordered, he designed all human relationships, including marriage, with the authority to be exercised lovingly and submission to be given willingly without any implication of superiority or inferiority. Now, very briefly here, for the sake of time, this is really a whole other sermon for a different time, but let me just very briefly address the question, well, what about, what about divorce? Uh, we would say this. I love the language that uh, David Jones uses in, uh, in his book, Biblical Christian Ethics. He says, the scriptures allow for divorce when there has been an egregious breach of the marriage covenant. Now, specifically, here's what we would say. We would say that means that scripture allows for three, uh, three reasons for divorce. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Now, adultery and abandonment are the two that are specifically uh, mentioned in scripture, referred to in scripture. But abuse is certainly a part of how that would play out in terms of abandonment, an egregious breach of the marriage covenant. It's important to say, though, that we wanna fight for our marriages. We would never want anyone to continue in a habitually abusive relationship, emotionally or physically. But we wanna fight for our marriages. We have so many stories over the years, so many, of people who were uh, absolutely convinced there is no way my marriage can be restored, there's no way there can be reconciliation, and there's no way that we would ever, ever thrive. We've seen God enter into those spaces, those places, those marriages, and do a work that only he can do. So we wanna come alongside you in that. Let me speak to three people in the room right now, three types of people in the room. First, uh, if you are, are same-sex attracted and in a relationship or union, we would go back to that, that original foundation of what I shared just a moment ago. Just to consider that, that simple consideration. If God is real and he is good and he is loving and he is trustworthy and he is the almighty God who created with purpose and design, would it be appropriate, would it be prudent to consider his design for my life, even if it goes against the desires of my flesh? Would there be something there that I haven't considered? And listen, we wanna come alongside you in that. I, I want you to hear me say, we are not against you. We are for you. We want you here. We wanna enter into relationship with you. And if you're so willing to begin to discover what is God's, designed for my life. To the married, 
How is your marriage reflecting your marriage with Jesus? Is it, is it thriving as a result of your relationship with him? Is there an intimacy that is experienced between your spouse that reflects and images the, the intimacy that we have with our husband, Jesus, as followers of him? Not all, there's no perfect marriage by any means. We all struggle at, certain, at some level, but I would say to you the same thing. We wanna come alongside of you. We wanna help you grow. We wanna help you flourish in your marriages. To the unmarried, to remind you of a quote that I used and illustrated two weeks ago from Sam Alberry when he was asked, are you bitter at God for being single? Do you feel like you're missing out? And his response was simply, how could I feel like I'm missing out when God has given me Jesus? And then he gave this analogy. He said, if the whole point of marriage on this side of heaven is to be a signpost to the greater eternal marriage to come with Jesus, then that means that that what's to come is the entree and marriage on this side of heaven is an appetizer. It's good. I'd love to have it one day, but it's an appetizer. And then he said this, I can skip the appetizer because I know I have the entree. So to the unmarried, I would say, remember Jesus, not just your savior, but your spouse spiritually, the one who satisfies all of our longings. Let me close with an illustration, a picture here. Um, I love to hike. Well, let me rephrase that. Depending on the trail and how hard it is, I love to hike. And Rachel and the kids and I, we, we like to go to the North Georgia mountains as often as we can, and we like to find trails that lead to waterfalls. We're waterfall people. I think we all are, right? If you, if you hike a trail and it doesn't lead to a waterfall, what are you doing? Like what? Why are you hiking? And so we've, we've hiked to a lot of waterfalls in North Georgia, and all of them are beautiful. All of them are glorious. But I... I set myself up for failure from the very beginning, early in my life, because the very first waterfall I can ever remember seeing in my lifetime was Niagara Falls. <laughs> so it's every, every waterfall I see from here on out, it might be beautiful in its own right, but I'm going, hey, you know, that kind of looks like a leaky faucet compared to Niagara Falls. <laughs> I want you to hear this and, and just think about this. Marriage on this side of heaven are the North Georgia waterfalls. They're be it's beautiful, it's great. It's awesome, but it's pointing to a greater waterfall. And our marriage with Jesus is Niagara, more than we could ever imagine, the flow of which overwhelms us. He is the one in whom our hearts long for. And that marriage to Jesus is coming. Listen to how the Apostle John summed it up. Remember I told you the Bible started with a marriage. It ends with one too. Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. Interesting. And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Here it is. For the marriage of the lamb has come. It's here. And his bride, that's us, who have believed upon him, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. But the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The marriage is coming. And oh, how glorious it will be. 
And all of our marriages now point to that greater marriage. One last thought. You find yourself thinking, wow, man, all the church does is just say, you need to repent, you need to change. Well, in a sense, that's true. And that's not just true for one group of people, that's true for all of us, because we're all sinful. But I want you to hear something that Jack Miller said. He said this, faith and repentance are not anything in themselves. It is Christ who is everything. Faith and repentance are of great value only because they bring a man into possession of Christ. So yes, of course, the call is to repent, but why? So that you get Jesus. He's the husband in whom we long for. Jesus, would you help us to see your beauty, your greatness? Would you turn our attention to the wonder and the awe of the marriage to come between you and your bride, the church? And help us to see even now that in your design, in your design, even now, there's such a beautiful picture, albeit a small waterfall, but a beautiful picture of what we have awaiting for us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We thank you, O God. Teach us, lead us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.